Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am so excited that you're about to listen in on another episode of the Made Possible by podcast. I wanted to take a quick second to let you know exactly what we do. Made Possible by makes giving easy for community-minded businesses and provide a more effective way to share their stories of good. Now let's jump into the podcast. Welcome to the Made Possible by podcast, where we have conversations around good with community-minded individuals. We hope that today's episode inspires you to go out and do good. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for our conversations around good. We love getting people together who talk about community and who live community. And our guest today is Ben Knuckles, um, one of the founding um, partners of Commonplace Books in Oklahoma City. You have a really sweet location, by the way, Ben. I love that spot. Thank, thank you. It's, it felt right from the get-go. Yeah, it's a good spot. It's a good spot. Um, so, Ben, thank you for joining us. Give us your 90-second um, nutshell of you. How would you describe yeah. it today? It kind of changes, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. That's probably the... the, the, the uh, the most consistent thing about the way I describe, describe my life, my existence in the world is that it's ever changing. So I feel like kind of a misfit in a mutt most of the time. That's um, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I think probably the most important thing about me is that I have three beautiful daughters um, that I have the privilege of raising um, and guiding. And what I've learned about parenting is mostly learned how to be human right alongside of them. Um, so three beautiful daughters, they are now 17, 13, and 11. Um, I have had a wonderful opportunity just to chase down a myriad of wonderful pursuits. Um, the common thread throughout all of kind of my professional career, so to speak, um, is that it's rooted in serving and loving this city. Um, I have a strong sense of call to this place um, and taking care of its people. And so whether it's been through a faith-based endeavor or a nonprofit or now in kind of a foray into small business. Um, the common thread throughout is just, you know, how do we take care of people? Um, those that appear to have it all put together and, uh, and those that may be a little bit more obvious that they don't. So anyway, I love this town. It's a fun place to live. Uh, I'm here by choice and I love taking care of, taking care of its people. That's a high calling, my friend. Yeah, it's, it's funny because it, it feels very lofty in one regard. Um, the older I get, um, it also feels a lot less grandiose, you know. So I used to describe my life kind of mission as to, to, to help make Oklahoma City a better, more equitable and just place to live for all people. And today I simply say it like this, like I'm trying to build a family as big as a city. Nice. So it's a lot less grandiose. It's a lot less lofty. I, I, I feel, um, I think I feel a healthier weight um, mm -hmm. for kind of that sense of call than I used to. I think it used to be a little bit of a, what I would call kind of a heavy bad weight um, that felt a little bit more burdensome. Mm -hmm. And for me, when things feel burdensome, you're, you're inclined to lay that burden at other people's feet too um and ask them to maybe do something and respond to something that isn't theirs to do um and so for me i just you know 
I feel like I do as much good in the world as I ever have, maybe even more so. Uh, but it sure looks a lot. Um, it sure looks a lot different. I figured out that the world is not mine to save, um, and uh, that taking care of one is just as good as taking care of masses. And there's just, I think there's a just a quieter. There's a quieter spirit about the way I move through the world than there was probably in my 20s and 30s. Um, you know, even talking with friends this week, just about all that's taking place, you know, in the world around Black Lives Matter and kind of continued police brutality. And I'm not going to turn your podcast into a political one, but, you know, in terms of just the wisdom that's required to know. Um, when to shut up, when to listen, but yet to not cross a line of passivity, yeah. right? Either um, to be willing to get it wrong in an attempt to get it right, um, you know, but again, I'm more clear than ever on, you know, who I'm speaking for. Um, and I think there was a time in my life where I probably would grandstand in the name of others, but uh, it was probably a little bit more self-serving than I would have liked to have admitted. Um, and so, you know, today it's like, I don't need to help people in the way that I used to need it. Um, and uh, I feel like a healthier, more helpful human as, as a result. I feel like, you know, Motives get checked and checked and checked and checked. And at the end of it, you probably end up with some pretty decent ones. Well, that's growth, right? That's life. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, it's, there's a saying that comes to my mind where, and I forget who attributed how, who to, I should attribute it to, but the thought is, you know, that we would oftentimes rather die in our dread than change. Mm. Uh, and I've just decided that I would rather change than, than die in my dread. And so um, I like who I am today, um, which is, I think, an important thing for all of us to be able to see, to be able to say. Yes. Well, thank you for choosing to live a life in the trenches. Yeah. Being involved with people. It's messy. It's messy. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it is. I am. Um, it's worth it, but it's worth oh it. It, yeah, it's completely worth it. And I, you know, I think again, part of my kind of life trajectory is it started out very kind of outwardly focused and very external in terms of the kind of change I sought to bring about. And you know, what I realized at thirty years of age, when you know, in some respect or many respect, maybe every respect, my life began to fall apart at the seams you know, walking through a, a failed marriage and a family that all of a sudden began to take different shape, um, not as a single family unit, you know, is I confronted failure for the first time in my life in a fairly colossal fashion. Um, and at that point, I realized that all of the good and all of the change that I was seeking out in the world, like I wasn't experiencing it in my own heart and life and home and family. And so that was a very a, a very pivotal shift for me to just say like, oh no, I need to want good things for me too. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's not a I I should only want good things for me, but it was like this idea of loving your neighbor. You know, it's like I I, I figured out and kind of reworked that in my own head of like 
you know, loving your neighbor is desiring for others that which you desire for oneself. Mm -hmm. Now, if I'm like constantly kind of lessening this desire for me, right, and mine, like I don't have abundant kind of immeasurable desire for my neighbor either. And so I've just realized that, you know, I used to hate the idea of putting an oxygen mask on myself first, right? It felt it felt like a selfish act, right? Like I just internally, it was just like, what? You know, it's like always the other first, the other first, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think I've just learned to put the oxygen mask on myself. Um, just realizing I'm not a superhero and I need to breathe pure oxygen too. Breathing is good. Yeah. <laughs> breathing is good for sure. That's good. Oh, that's great. So tell us a little bit about Commonplace. How did it get started? What was the idea? Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, the, the one thing I also say about myself a lot is like, I know great people, you know, and I've kind of bent my life around this idea of first who, then what. Um, and so most every kind of pursuit and opportunity has been relationally driven and so was this one um you know i remember gosh five or six years ago maybe more um my friend blair humphreys you know we were having lunch in norman he was still working at ou at the time in the institute for quality communities and uh we were at cafe plaid which doesn't exist anymore and you know he said knowing me well, he said, I think you ought to consider adding a brick and mortar element to your life. He said, you exist in this kind of purely relational existence and you're never going to build a personal brand or monetize the time and, you know, effort that you give to people. He's like, you're never going to like go consult, you know, for a day rate or anything like that. And he just said like, but he was like, I think you ought to add a brick and mortar element to kind of the way you network and the way you care for people and that stuck with me I didn't know what that brick and mortar element was but he, he he ended up being right because I did transition out of a more kind of purely relational existence in the world where I was holding court and coffee slingers for five and eight hours at a time you know doing this that or the other um, and I began to explore you know more concrete expressions of what I felt called to be and do and so that was really the first seed of, of Commonplace Bookstore was like first beginning to wrap my head and heart around kind of this brick and mortar idea, whether it was a co-working space, you know, which I thought through, you know, eight years ago, or you know, at one point I wanted to start kind of the center for city renewal, which would have this very grand kind of brick and mortar element. And I just began being drawn to to the built environment and the way we develop neighborhoods and placemaking and all of these things. And so then I just decided like, you know, I'm just going to create the thing that I wished existed in the world. Um, and I think that's like probably the like most honest answer I can give is like, I've lived in and around Midtown for a dozen years now. Um, I love it. I've contributed, I hope, in some small part to its kind of renewal and its growth. I've certainly participated and benefited from it. But all of that to say, it was like those were kind of the initial kind of seeds of commonplace. And then I remember 
Steve Lackmeyer, he kind of conducted this informal study years and years and years ago about like, you know, what are the top three things that downtown dwellers want to see? And it was a grocery store, a pharmacy, and a bookstore. And I remember there just being kind of this like kind of low level hum about a bookstore in particular about, you know, with people's interest kind of growing there. And I remember thinking like, yeah, we do need a bookstore. And then it kind of materialized further to like, I would help somebody start a bookstore to like years later, like, well, hell, nobody's done it still. I guess I'll do it. Right. And then a mutual friend, um, Jonathan Dotson, um, connected Nate Carr and I, who had known one another a long time, but John pulled us together one day and he said, do you guys, do you guys realize that you're both talking about opening a bookstore in Midtown? And Nate and I had never had that conversation. We had had many, but we had not had that particular one. And so we just kind of made this kind of immediate, you know, pack that we were going to do it together. And we each threw a buck on the table at Red Cup and, you know, went in as equal partners and decided like, all right, let's, let's create the thing that we wished existed in the world. And, um, you know, fast forward, you know, a couple of years, we launched Commonplace and uh, it's existed for, gosh, almost three, well, three and a half years, um, three and a half years now. And it's been better than I could have imagined, mm -hmm. more difficult, but better. Yeah. That's typically how good things are, right? There's the... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I always say damn hard, but exceedingly worth it. There you go. Yeah. yeah. So... That's most things, right? Most yeah. things we're worth having are a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. So what's it's kind of the premise of Commonplace? Like, how would you describe it in a nutshell? I mean, it's funny because it's like a bookstore that doesn't really have anything to do with a bookstore. It's like, <laughs> for, us, for us, it's like, of course, we all love books. And our, you know, my life has been fundamentally changed, you know, through kind of just the power of written word and story and narrative and all of those things. Um, but I think for me and for us, it was we identified books the way we would say it as books being a powerful medium to connect people to one another in meaningful ways mm -hmm. and then spread ideas that matter. Mm -hmm. So I think that's at the core of, you know, commonplace and even more succinctly put, we would say it's books and people, you know, but when we say books and people, what we really mean is people. Yeah. And so for us, it's about creating a space by which people are welcome um, to come in. If you think about it in our, in our society, like, there aren't very many places left where you're welcome to come and be without an expectation of purchase, right? So it's like a bookstore is really one of the few places where it's like, it's kind of assumed that you'll come in and roam around for a while and maybe 50% of the time make a purchase. But like it's design and its intent is ultimately not about that kind of transactional moment where money changes hand in exchange for a product or a service rendered, right? So that's, I mean, that's the guts of, of commonplace is like, how do we create a sustainable small business model, which it is, um, in a way that we're, you know, my background in nonprofit, in a way that I'm not, you know, always pounding pavement for the next donation, the next donation, mm -hmm. um, but create something that can be sustainable um, and accomplish some beautiful mission um, 
in the meantime. And it's like, we could spend all day, you know, talking about the, the mutuality and the exchanges that have occurred from one patron to the other, between a bookseller and a patron, between myself or another owner and a part of our staff. And, you know, for us, we think about, you know, we don't really have employees. Like we don't think about them that way. Like the invitation is to come kind of do life together within the context of that place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, that extends to our patrons and our neighbors and the community at large. Well, I would totally say that I agree with that, that it's people first. I was there a few weeks ago and there was this sweet little homeless man and his dog just hanging out on the couch. Yeah. And that's completely okay. Yeah. You know, I mean, you're not going to expect him to go, you know, go buy three books or whatever, you know, and nobody was looking at him like, you got to get out of here or what, you know, it was just, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. No, it's, I think it's, I've said this a lot, you know, if anything, what we offer is our humanity um and that's something that the internet will never be able to offer you know it's something that big big box retail can't offer mm-hmm. um it's something that no algorithm can ever derive mm-hmm. um and so that's that's the only thing that makes us special right is that we're willing to kind of put our own humanity out there on display and welcome others to do mm-hmm. to do the same well, you're doing a great job, clearly. It's it's making Well, thank you. But, I mean, for sure in Midtown. I love it. So we always like to talk about corporate social responsibility. That's kind of a, a buzz term, but I find that probably 50% of the people who hear us say that don't really understand what that means. So what yeah. does it mean to you? I mean, to me, I think it's like... It, it starts at the individual level, right? And there's 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 an individual responsibility, I think, that I even talked about in my own life. Like, how do I, as a person, take care of another person, right? And then as you, like, as that grows, then individuals begin to congregate together, whether it's in an organizational or an institution or a corporate forum, right? It's, I think, the collective responsibility only increases, and I would say it not only increases, it compounds. Um, and so I think, again, just a, I think just kind of just solid wisdom, right? It's like kind of this to whom much is given, much is required idea. Um, so I think, you know, companies that are, you know, tasked with X, Y, Z, you know, ultimately it's, you know, they've got resources, human and financial and influence and otherwise, um, and there's an opportunity to wield it um and 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 to wield it wield it for good um and to exist for a higher purpose than themselves right you know i would just kind of say any good organization of any of any kind like if it's not existing for the benefit of others then it's failing in its ultimate mm-hmm. mission you know and that does it that transcends and you know industry or type um, and it's like at the end of the day, it's like if there's not that additional bottom line, so to speak, right? Then, um, then it's then it's just it's ultimately going to kind of ring hollow. Yeah. Um, and not that true. So. Mm-hmm. So it come uh, here's what I'm I'm writing these notes down because I always like to I like to learn from people. 
And what I'm hearing from you again and again is it comes down to people. Yeah. It, I mean, it is, I don't, I don't, what else do we have? Like, I, I don't know what else are we doing? You know, it's like, I just, before, before I jumped on the call with you, it's like, you know, it's like we, we were doing a picnic in married gardens for an outgoing employee who is going to work for a competitor, you know? And it's like, well, yeah, she's leaving our company to go work for another, but like, this is still Hannah, right? Like, this is still Hannah who we love from the moment she walked in the door several years ago, right up to this moment now. And like, like that doesn't begin and end with, you know, employment, you know, or compensation. And that's not where her loyalty lies. And it's not where ours lie. It's like, this is about Hannah. And it's about like, like I said, even with the staff at Commonplace, same is true with a small business or a very large corporate business. It's like, really the invitation is to not help us come fulfill our dreams. You know, the invitation has to be mutual. It's like, if I can't look at a staff member or a team member or a coworker or even an employer and say like, how can I help you fulfill your dream while you help me fulfill mine? Mm -hmm. Then that relationship is bankrupt um, from the, from the very beginning. So again, for us, like we hire somebody at the bookstore, like, it's about how do we help you get where you're going, mm -hmm. you know, and like, how do we share life together? And like, this isn't about you helping Ben Knuckles or anyone else, like create the next best bookstore. This is about like us doing life together in a meaningful way. Um, and again, I just, I'll, I'll reiterate it over and over and over again. There has to be mute, mutuality um, to, to what takes place and it has to be free flowing has to be an environment where I would say everybody's giving and everybody's receiving and nobody's taking right mm -hmm. and I think that's key especially in the workplace is like you know a lot of times there's a lot of taking going on you know and you've got um, you know employers taking from employees and extracting talent and energy and life from them you know and then oftentimes you've got employees you know, just simply taking and using and maybe even abusing an employer, like, you know, to see what they can kind of suck out of it for a stretch of days and use it for the next, you know, kind of the next building block of their life. So that's what I would say is like, you know, how do we create environments where everybody's giving and everybody's receiving and nobody's taking? Oh, I love that. I wrote that down too. That's, that sums it up. I love yeah. That. So yeah. talk to me, how, do, how does community, excuse me, commonplace, how do you all um, give back to your community? I would say it's, yeah, I would say it's different in that like, I mean, I, if I could tell you about the countless nonprofits, you know, that we've contributed to um, over the last three and a half years or so, I mean, like, you know, it's a litany and it's, you know, borderline bad business, you know, <laughs> you know, I, I remember the first, the first year of kind of looking at kind of gross sales and then seeing, you know, the, 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 the percentage of discounts given or, 
goods given, you know, whatever the case may be. And it was like, oh, we get we give away we give away a lot of money and a lot of product through the course of the year. Um, but, but I think part of what part of what we do is we try to be really selective in it. Like, um, to me, it's like I'll use the kind of the bookstore as the example. It's like we don't discount books, right? And the reason we don't discount books is number one, like the margins are thin. Two, uh, margins are thin to begin with. Two, um, we, we think it devalues um, the actual kind of the art form of a book. Um, and then third, we want our everyday regular patrons to help contribute financially to what we're trying to accomplish in terms of taking care of people. And so when we do give something or discount something or whatever the case may be, um, it's an act of generosity. Um, and it's about responding to a person in the moment. Um, you know, for example, like there's a kind of an unspoken culture in our store at this point of like, there's a standard set of books that we always have in stock about grief. Right. And what I love is we've created a culture by which like now our booksellers, they don't even, they don't even have to ask me if they should give that book on grief away to the person who's either grieving themselves or looking for a resource for somebody that they love who is right. It's just like, we don't accept money for books on grief, right? Like we just don't do it. It's like, it's our attempt, you know, to give this, to look somebody in the eyes and say, we would like for you to have this. Um, we don't go on a long, you know, rant or get on a soapbox about why, but for us, it's about an act of solidarity of how we can enter into the moment of somebody's life. And so from the very beginning of, you know, commonplace, we, we always said like, it's about meeting the everyday needs of our community. And so again, what I love about the retail experience is again, it's one of the few places where needs walk in the door all day, every day, you know? And if you'll, again, this is the job description I give our staff. It's not sell books. It's a very lofty, I probably give them as lofty of a job description as I give myself in life. And it's your job is to number one, take care of people. And then secondly, it's to steward a moment in somebody's life. Mm -hmm. So that's a tall order for 12 bucks an hour. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's how seriously we take kind of the culture uh, and the care within those four walls is like, you know, our goal is that nobody leaves empty handed. But that has very little to do with whether or not you buy a book or not. Mm -hmm. Right. So I, I probably didn't answer your question very well, but I mean, for us, like the way we give back happens at the individual level for the most part. Um, you mentioned a, you know, a, a gentleman in the store who was homeless recently. Well, last February, uh, we held a funeral in the bookstore mm -hmm. for our friend, Matt, who was an everyday part of the bookstore life. Um, every day he either came by just to say hi, ask if there was an odd job he could do, but mostly he was kind of just checking in like, Hey, how's it going? This is what I'm up to today. This is where I'm going next. I got an odd job cleaning windows here, there, you know, and then sometimes he would just call the store out of the blue on a day and just say like, 
hey, I just finished up a job here. I'm headed to another job there. It was just like, he just didn't want to be alone, right? Mm -hmm. And he wanted like somebody to bear witness to his life. And we were the people that, we didn't choose Matt. Like Matt chose us like Mm -hmm. as the witnesses to his life. And so all we really did was stand there and keep our eyes open and just say to Matt over and over and over again, like, we see you, you're not invisible. We see you, you're not invisible. We see you, you're not invisible. And the reality is like, everybody needs to hear that, not just the man or the woman who presents homeless, right? Like I have guys in white, white shirts and ties, you know, walking this bookstore a lot. And they also need to hear like, hey, you're not invisible, we see you. Not invisible, we see you. Like whatever's going on in your life, if you're inclined to talk about it, we're inclined to listen. Like, mm-hmm. let me know what you got. I mean, the number of times I've stopped what I'm doing, got down on a knee, just really as a sign to the patron, like, I'm not in a hurry. You're not bothering me. I'm going to like almost literally like kind of take a knee so you know, like I'm going to be here a while and you talk as long as you need, you know? And mm-hmm. we've talked about death and we've talked about failed marriages and we've talked about wayward kiddos and we've talked about financial hearts hardship we've talked about spiritual crisis i mean like if those walls could talk i mean running a bookstore is like confessions of a taxi cab driver right it's like when you create a safe place right you know when you create a safe place people intuitively respond to it right you know, I'll never forget a young gentleman, young professional, he's a banker, a young professional banker, come in the store a lot, you know, at his, on his lunch hour, go get something to eat, swing by for 15 minutes, go on about his day. And I'll never, rem- I'll never forget, like, you know, one time we got in this kind of exchange and it started a small talk and then began to kind of deepen. Um, but there was this kind of like, can I cross, can I like, can I pass go moment? Right. And he looked at me and he said, can I be honest with you? And the real question was not like, can I say my truth? The real question was like, are you safe? And can I trust you with my truth? Right. Um, And the answer was of course, yes. But the only way he's going to be able to know that, he can be honest with me is if I will also be honest with him and say like, okay, what we're going to do right here and now is we're going to create like a safe place where we both can exist, right? Fully and wholly, even if today, like wholly is kind of broken and busted up. Right. Mm -hmm. So again, I would just say like, you know, kind of back to Matt, it's like, like, that's the way we give back is like, I figured out how to solve homelessness, Tracy, with Matt. Like everybody's trying to figure out how to solve homelessness, right? I figured out how to solve homelessness. It costs 60 bucks a night for that guy, one guy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I figured out how to solve homelessness again with my friend, Steven, who I met on Easter. He was homeless in Atlanta, came here to do a truck driving program that there was a grant for gets all the way to Oklahoma right before COVID happens. And of course, like, the school shuts down, you know, and he's stranded here, right? I met Stephen on Easter Sunday morning, and I don't know, what was that, April the 12th? Today's June the 13th, you know, so for the last, you know, eight weeks, eight, nine weeks, like, 
Steven's been a part of my life. And I figured out how to solve homelessness for Steven. And it was actually renting him a private room through Airbnb for $20 a night, right? It's like, to me, that's what it looks like. I spent the first decade of my adult life trying to figure out how to solve homelessness and other issues at this systemic level. But it's like, if I can't like solve it for Steven, then like, what, I mean, what are we, do, what are we doing? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, it's like, that's what we do. It's, it's, it's just what we do. Um, I would say it's not what you do. I would say it's who commonplace is. Yeah. Because that, I agree with that. that to me is way more than what you do. Um, just having what you said, stewarding the moment. Yeah. How many moments do we just blow? Yeah, I mean, because we're living in what I need to accomplish, you know, yeah. that's huge. Well, we're—I mean, again, I guess where it comes back to a to a personal level is like in a lot of ways we're disembodied and we're not present to ourselves, and you can't you you don't even know that you're missing moments, right? That's the most alarming part, right? Mm-hmm. Is it's once you know you're missing moments, you're probably less inclined to keep missing them, right? Mm-hmm. Cuz at that point it's it's a it's about choice and will. It's like if you if you realize I'm numbed out, I'm unaware, I'm blowing through life at this torrid pace, you know, and leaving people in my wake, whatever the case may be. Like if you're aware of that and continue on, I mean, that's a, you've kind of clicked off at that point mm-hmm. and you're operating at a, at a, at a pretty frightening level, but it's like, once you become aware, and again, that's where I think there has to be grace understanding for self and others. It's like, it, if you, you don't know you're unaware, right. Until you've been made aware, you know, like I remember, you know, in my early thirties, it was like, I was numbed out in a lot of ways, attempting to do a lot of good in the world, but like numbed out, like couldn't tell you the last time I cried, like kind of just moving through life, probably a little bit self-important kind of on this mission. And then like, I, I kind of liken it kind of this word picture for it is like, I felt like I was a refrigerator appliance in a warehouse shoved up against the wall with the cord lying on the floor and I just remember thinking like somehow somebody at some point like I got plugged back in right and it was like I didn't know how off I was until like I felt that "Mm," that come back on right Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden you like you begin to see I call it the tragic gift of awareness right (laughs) Because once you see, once you see, you can't stop seeing, mm-hmm. right? And it's, it's brutal. And it's like, I know why we numb out because it's, it's, it's brutal to see. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's not easy to look at your own, like, shortcomings and your own failures and your own disappointments. And number one, be honest about them. And then, like, fumble your way through trying to offer yourself forgiveness right like you know and finding a way to like transform your own pain rather than just continue to transfer it to the next person the next and the next right like that's not easy i know why we numb out i did it 
Mm -hmm. right? It's easier to not feel than to feel, but like to feel is to live. And like, I just decided like, I actually want to live my life. Like, I don't want to just plod my way through it. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and to stop in those moments and take a meeting for someone, you're inviting them into your world. And by inviting them into your world, you're opening yourself to more pain. But yeah. you're choosing to do that. But I would say, you know, I read something. Well, I'm a big fan of Brene Brown okay. uh, to begin with. And probably the single most transformative book I've read in eight years is Daring Greatly. Okay. Uh, and to me, I have very few kind of must read books. I'm kind of the last guy to tell somebody that something's a must read, but this is probably one of the few that I would actually, um, I would actually put in that category. Okay. Um, and it, yeah, daring greatly. She's Brene Brown. Well, you know, probably a lot of your listeners are going to be familiar, but I'm always, you know, not surprised in a snooty way. But you know, a lot of people aren't familiar with her too. She has probably the fourth most watched TED Talk ever. Um, so, like, that's a great like place to start with Brene Brown. Is you know, she did a TEDx talk in Houston that went nuts, and then was invited to the main stage the next year. Um, and so she, um, in, in her, it's a book about vulnerability and she essentially kind of the basic premise of the book is that vulnerability is not weakness. Mm. That in fact, it's our only accurate measure of courage. Mm. Mm. And so in that book, you know, when I talk about daring greatly, I talk about like that book broke my heart and then put it back together again. Um, and she, she taught me one very important lesson that has forever shaped kind of my life. Um, and it is this, it's that I cannot selectively numb emotion, right? That I had a choice to make. Like I could either feel it all or I could feel nothing at all. And so I made a very conscious choice like in my life, like I choose to feel it all. And you talked about inviting somebody into your life, you're inviting pain. But I would also say this, to the degree that you invite pain into your life is to the exact same extent that you invite joy into your life. That's true. So it's like, you, you don't get one without the other. So like, show me a person who has known and experienced pain and I'll show you a person who actually knows joy, yeah. right? Yeah. And the one who doesn't know pain doesn't know joy and they're content with very little. And they probably are the human that's just kind of plodding their way through life a little bit checked out and living for the weekend. And how do I accumulate, you know, a few more kind of pleasures that might take the edge off. And again, there's nothing wrong with enjoying the pleasures of life. You know, I open a bottle of red wine every night. It's like, <laughs> I enjoy the pleasures of life, right? Like, I'm no, like, I'm no, like, masochist, right? Like, but it's, I, I would just say it's like, that's how it works. It's like, you don't get to pick. You don't get to pick, like, mm -hmm. well, joy and sorrow. It's like. It goes hand in hand. Go ahead. Well, Ben, I really appreciate your time today. You're 
we didn't answer a lot of questions, but I appreciate that we didn't because what we talked about was real and inspiring. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening in to another episode of the Made Possible By podcast. Made Possible By helps make community giving easy. The businesses we serve love to give back to their communities with their time, product, and cash. It's rewarding, but not easy. So let us help you continue to do good in your community.